please a really warm welcome for Polly. What they see here. As you were walking, it's Einstein's face, but as you were walking in the room, could you see his face following you around? And does it look like a normal face to you? Anything funny about it? Yeah. No? <laughs> well, I have a surprise for you. His face is actually hollow. It's a concave surface. Does it look like that? Well, now I've told you maybe, but it's really hard for you to see it as a hollow face because faces are hollow. You think your whole life knowing that faces pop out. They are convex surfaces. And I come here telling you that this is hollow? That can be. However, you have such strong experiences of how faces are that it's really hard for me to convince you otherwise. Think about it from the moment you are a baby. You lie in your crib, crying out for a parent to come and comfort you, refusing to sleep, like at least my daughter liked to do. During the first few days of your life, everything is a blur, including that comforting blob that picks you up, and they smell familiar. They cuddle you, they give you some yummy sustenance, and more often than not, let you doze off in their arms. You like that blob. Gradually, you start making out some of their features. Their wide open eyes, their mouth that makes comforting sounds and sings lullabies. You start recognizing this blob as they walk into the room. And soon, you start recognizing them in a room full of blobs. It doesn't matter if you can't see in 3D well yet. Faces are something you've mastered. Today, a few decades later, I tell you that this face is hollow and naturally your brain tells you no way. We've spent all our lives believing faces are convex. You won't change our perception of faces. We don't see them as hollow. Indeed, our perception of the world around us is not just made up from the information that reaches our eyes as we scan the room. It's a combination of what our eyes see and what the brain believes it sees. It is how we get tricked by visual illusions, how when in a hurry to leave the room, we miss our, our keys on the side table, even though they're just there, waiting to get picked up. It's how we misinterpret a shadow in a dark alley and think they're a person following us. I became familiar with eyesight problems quite early on, putting on my first pair of glasses at age seven. I had this cute case with white flowers that made getting used to them a bit easier. From occasional wearing, they became a permanent accessory, making sure I ticked all the boxes of being a nerd in primary school. <laughs> However ridiculous that may seem to me now, my seven-year-old self felt different. Growing up with my uncle and aunt being opticians, deficient eyesight was normalized into a common problem, which could, however, be fixed. Fast forward to high school, as romantic teenager me sets off to watch The Notebook. I know. Which leaves me with a pit in my stomach. The main character, Ali, suffers from dementia. 
she cannot remember any details about her past, including the face of the love of her life. I find it unfair. She can walk and dance, and doesn't seem to be suffering any physical ailments, like what my grandparents at the time used to have. But her brain was failing her. To me, the brain was so different to having a heart condition, or weak knees, or an easily upset stomach. There were pills and therapies for these, but the brain? How could Ali remember again? Embarrassing as it sounds, this was the first important nudge towards studying neuroscience, a Nicholas Sparks story and a vast ignorance of human physiology. Towards the end of high school, my grandfather was diagnosed with Parkinson's. While he struggled to walk, he was still grandpa. He still went on his fishing boat, he sat with us at family dinners, he still laughed. One early evening, my grandpa and I were walking from our house to my grandparents' house, quarter of a mile away. It had just started getting dark, and the street lights never worked in my neighborhood. Suddenly, he stops. Watch out, he says. You're about to walk into a puddle. I look down, and sure enough, there's some dirt on the never-ending patching up of the street, but certainly no water or puddle. I smile and walk around the patch of dirt, and we continue our walk. I later find out that he has begun to see things, ranging from misplaced objects in the house to dread relatives sitting across the room, upsetting him because they never paid him any attention. The doctors attribute it to medication, switch his pills, things get worse before they altogether stop. But Grandpa is no longer Grandpa. He stops talking, stops laughing, and soon is bedbound. In bewilderment of how challenging the next few months were, I couldn't not be intrigued by his hallucinations. Why did he see things that were not there? At this point, I have started university. My fascination with neuroscience was not enough to pull me away from maths and physics into medicine. I studied electrical computer engineering, knowing that towards the end of my degree, I could minor in biomedical engineering and thus switch into brain. I had a teacher who knew me very well, and when she heard I was going into engineering, was surprised. But you have to do something with people. I know that you're meant to do something with people. In the end, I did circle back from math and coding to people being in the center of my research. My PhD was on visual perception. I will never forget the first time I used a computer mouse to scroll through an MRI of the brain. Finally, what I pictured neuroscience research to be was there in front of me. Specifically, I studied the neurochemicals that are important for picking up new visual skills. I trained people to get better at recognizing noisy visual information or things that seem indistinguishable, and used MRI to measure what happens to these important neurochemicals as they learned. It was summer, towards the end of my PhD, that I went back to Greece for holidays, like every year. After lunch, as the cicadas try to lag your way into an afternoon siesta, my grandma and I are sitting on the balcony. She looks up the half-finished block of flats opposite us and says laughing, You know, I see little children dancing on that construction. 
Of course, I know they're not bad. I look, and there's all bricks and concrete. No children or any other humans. The fact that she recognizes that what she sees isn't there prompts me to continue the conversation. I ask, really? There isn't anyone there? She responds in her usual smiling way. But of course not. That would be bizarre, but I still see them. <laughs> also, sometimes I think there's Christmas decorations on this pine tree in the garden, though I know there can't be. We laugh it off. I remind her that she can rely on what she knows is reasonable or not, given she still can, to rule out these impossible visions. And then I speak with my mom. The doctor believes it's dementia and puts her on a pill. We don't worry much, as she still has an incredibly sharp mind, the kind of mind that at 80 years old beats everyone's memory at family gatherings, solves crosswords puzzles, keeps tracks of things happening around her. But again, the same question arises. Why did my ever-intelligent grandma see things that were not there? I go back for Christmas. Children dancing and Christmas decorations have escalated into seeing her dead sisters at night, waking up crying, trying to lift them up from the floor, night after night. She's now quieter during the day, not her usual happy self. She still recognizes me, but forgets I'm pregnant. She remembers it while watching a news piece about a baby that passed away and can't stop crying because she thinks it's mine. She can't tell reality apart anymore. She's now closer to Lally than Grandma. And what had I done in my research to change it this far? Nothing. I now work as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford. And I investigate which new chemicals are to blame for generating visual hallucinations in Parkinson's disease. Do things go wrong when the visual information from our eyes is processed in the part of the brain that breaks the environment down into colors and shapes? Or can the brain not match the visual information to past experiences and what it expects to see? Or both? How can we intervene to reduce these misperceptions? Can we use drugs that target key neurochemicals? Can we use non-invasive methods, that is, techniques that do not require surgery, to help different brain areas communicate more efficiently. And can we do all that while patients fight the symptoms, the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease? These are all questions that I ask in my research, and I hope that in four years' time, I can come back and give you some answers. because these are symptoms that arise in diseases that have a very different, like, they have very different uh, deficiencies in the brain. So, 
so a recent, a recent review, so a paper that looks at all the research that is out there and compares it, um, says that indeed there are some common features between all these disorders, however, they, they can't all have the same source. Um, so I think that researchers in all the different subfields of this, if you'd like, are talking to each other to see what may be common and how they may the knowledge that we find from one disorder can help us with the other. However, everyone is still looking at their very specific uh, disease first. Yeah? Yeah, I'm sort of shooting the same direction. So when I think of uh, hallucinations, it's like um, I would not think of neurodegenerative diseases first, but like I would think of drugs, I would think of, I don't know, uh, psychosis, something like mm -hmm. that. I would not really doubt, um, because we, we are still trying to understand the neurochemical, if you want, um, basis of all these different disorders. We don't know it yet, so it could be because all these different neurochemicals, they do work together in the brain. It's not that you say, oh, we can blame this neurochemical without <laughs> ignoring all the others. Um, so it could be that they have some common source deep down. Um, However, a lot of these things, like for, in psychosis, for example, the main symptom is auditory hallucinations rather than visual. And it's quite surprising why in Parkinson's specifically, it's mainly or exclusively visual. So these two, like we have some, some difference between them. Um, and there's also something to be said about internally generated hallucinations, so like in Parkinson's, and these caused by drugs, because the drugs do cause a temporary imbalance in all these neurochemicals. Um, however, while you're in a disease state, I would think that you, you usually have that. You are at a certain level of imbalance. It doesn't, it's not a transient change, if you'd like. Um, but that's my personal opinion, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. A lot of these things are still ongoing research. Thank you. We have a hand over there. Yeah. Um, we tend to think of, like you were describing it, as hallucinations as unusual. But actually, we all hallucinate every night when we dream. So maybe it's, I mean, there, there's an issue about the brain is used to creating new hallucinations, but the conscious awake brain suppresses those. So that's what we normally do. And obviously children, little children, when they play, create ideas and imaginations and imagine the world that they're playing in. Yeah, so yeah. hallucinations is a common experience. It's just as we get older, we learn to suppress it. Yes, as we get older, we, we learn to, to trust the information that we perceive yeah, with our five senses yeah. more than what our brain generates. And then, so children have a very different um, mechanism at a younger age to how they assign, um, to, to what they assign more trust. Um, but it's interesting, your grandmother said, mm -hmm. I know they're not real. So, and my yeah. mother-in-law, who also had Parkinson's, she would say, 
oh, I know the hallucination's not real, but I still have yeah. a conversation with it. Well, <laughs> so this is, this is curious because back then I, I knew even less than I know now, um, and I didn't speak to her doctor in detail. However, there is a disorder where, as people get cataract, and their visual input gets worse and worse, they start seeing things, but they know they're not there because they don't have, their reality check system is not broken. So they know that what they see isn't there. So this is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And my grandma had severe cataract. <laughs> and I think that this may have um, affected all that. Now, whether in the end it turned to dementia, I don't know. But usually when we say dementia, people do not necessarily understand that what they see isn't there. <laughs> We show them a picture and they find a lot of different meanings. They see different objects, they see faces where there are none. We haven't put not any there. So we find these differences quite robustly. That people who hallucinate, they, they generate multiple meanings from pictures that have a single meaning for people who don't hallucinate. So it, it's really hard to ask, <laughs> as you say, yeah, what is real for you and what is real for me? And, how do we parameterize a situation where people just generate hallucinations in their mind? So in order to study these things, we, we really need to bring them down to something we can control in the lab. Um, so yeah, we, we study different aspects of it in order to understand it. And 
possibly as um, if we design very brave experiments like have people wearing recording electrodes for the whole day <laughs> and they tell us when they hallucinate if anyone would volunteer for that i doubt it um then then we can really see what happens at that time of spontaneous hallucination but it's really hard to do So if it's something that can be easily misperceived as something else, yet they may have the same experience. But people are very, very different. And because they are trying to match it to their own past experiences, you can imagine that this can vary so much, right? Thank you so much. <laughs>